0: welcome to the Colts Cover 2 podcast. I am Joel A. Erickson. I am joined, as always, by Nate Atkins. We have a lot of information uh, to download after the last couple days. 45 minutes to an hour in the locker room with with Colts players uh, on Monday. Uh, 20 minutes with Jeff Saturday, roughly. And then 40 minutes with um, Chris Ballard yesterday. Just as they set the table... For, for this coaching search that uh, started in earnest today with uh, Bubba Ventrone getting an interview. Um, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about some of the candidates they have here towards the end of the podcast. But I think for the most part, let's we'll start now with um, just a discussion of of jeff saturday uh, the 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 interim coach, he went one and seven in his audition. Uh, I think most Colts fans would be. Um upset to be putting it mildly, if he ends up getting the head job, but there is a very real possibility that, that is the case that he ends up getting the head job. It all depends on what Jim Ursay wants. Chris Ballard said that. Um, you know, he's going to be leading the search, but the deciding vote, but the decision actually comes uh, comes down to Mr. Ursay. so that's that's Ballard's words. Um. Why uh, I'll start with this, Nate. Why, why do the, the whole, that whole bit about the Colts have tried to say over the last couple of days, Jeff Saturday first, and then Chris Ballard to a lesser degree yesterday, that the one in seven record doesn't essentially matter because he didn't have time to, um, he didn't have time to do anything that he wanted to do. Habits and stuff are built in April. I don't think that's wrong. True for most of us. Um, I know that there are some people who feel that, that that's true and that Saturday was essentially just holding a team's hand as it went through its dying throws. Um, but but it doesn't seem to, it doesn't ring true for most of us. And, uh, you know, for, for you, what's the biggest, biggest part of that?
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting couple of days on that front and trying to kind of process uh, where this franchise is at, where it's trying to move uh, when they need leadership so badly. Uh, and that, that's obviously what they're looking for, first for their head coach, and then the quarterback and the leadership for what could be a rookie quarterback, what should be a rookie quarterback. What's interesting with it to me is that whole thing started when we got Jeff on uh, his year-end presser, and what had happened with that was, you know, we we went into that, I went into that wondering what his some of his selling points were going to be, knowing that he's not going to lay out his full case for us. But what I had asked him was just, you know he came in saying that this was, you know, this is a little crazy. We knew it was crazy circumstances, but this was his eight-game audition to show something, whether that's you know, we didn't know if that was, you know, wins and losses, we didn't know if that was, you know, the identity of the team, we didn't know if that was a certain schematic approach, but he had, he had described it as an audition for 32 teams to see if he could be a head coach. So I just asked him, what did you show in those eight games? And that's kind of when he came, when he went in that direction of you know it wasn't a real audition and it was the hand i was dealt chris Bauer got a similar question about what did jeff show you in the eight games that shows that he improved the team and sort of the whole answer was all about behind the scenes stuff and him learning on the job problem is that they realized there's no case based on the eight games he was here for there's just there just isn't uh because you know we can go over the numbers but they were one in seven uh, they were outscored by neg- by 87 points, his third worst in the NFL if that was a full season. Fourth quarter, which they call winning time, he was outscored 108 to 19, or after fourth quarter and overtime. Uh, so they know that he didn't want to try to, I guess, speak up something that was just clearly and objectively bad. But the problem with that is that if we take out the results of those eight games, what are we left with to judge Jeff Saturday on? He's never coached above high school. He's never coached above college. And he's had eight weeks here. So the case for him at this point becomes very mysterious and hard to figure out. Uh, he didn't want to share it, which on some levels, I understand him not wanting to lay out his entire staff. But At the same time, I've never covered a coaching staff that that couldn't point to something in the games. You know, it, we usually hear a lot about the fight that the, you know, the coaches love to talk up certain things in moments in a game, even if they didn't win the game, whether that's fight, whether that's resolve, whether that's togetherness, whether that's, you know, some of the things they did on one side of the ball, improvements they made in a certain area. The fact that there's just through 50 minutes of talking to those two, there was not one example from any game of anything you could point to and say, this is what we think Jeff would bring as a head coach. It's just very alarming and it brings his whole case to be the head coach back to very theoretical levels which is what it was when he when he got here as an outsider guy who doesn't have experience guy who could be great if he was given this chance but we're still having that conversation eight games later because now they're saying well he still didn't have a chance and what he needs is that chance but the problem is when you're hiring a coach that's not how it works you don't get to get the job get four years and then say this is why i earned the job in the first place like it, you got to have a case you got to have a reason Got to have a selling point, frankly, to the fan base, and I think this uh, past two days, 50 minutes of interviews just showed just how difficult that's going to be if Jeff Saturday ends up being the choice.
0: Something you said there at the beginning is something I kind of want to sit on because I know, I know there is a portion of the fan base that feels like um, what they're saying is true—that there wasn't really a chance with this team. This team was too bad uh, to do anything. Um, but I, I do think it's important to say the Colts themselves changed their tune on that. Um they, they've all changed their tune on that. And and I will say this, Chris Ballard uh sidestepped or dodged or however you want to say my direct question about this. But when they introduced Jeff Saturday as the interim, they said we're not throwing in the towel. I know players felt that way, especially after the the Raiders game. Um Jim Ursay sold it as a uh something to arrest the free fall that, the, that he saw them in. Um and you don't arrest a free fall by going further into it and going all the way to the bottom. Uh, you know, it, they, all three of them, Jeff, Jeff Saturday, you pointed this out, but Jeff Saturday said al- all along, you know, I'm going to be judged on W's and L's, and so that's what matters here. I, every time we asked him about a decision he made at quarterback, any other position, he said, I'm trying to win games here. <laughs> so all three of the principal decision makers for the Colts, when this when this whole experiment started, set it up as an audition an actual audition where the results mattered uh that's true that's been true for all of them um and now only now after it's one in seven they're changing their tune i think i think most of us know why um i think i think if you pay attention to the chris ballard press conference it's pretty easy to see that ballard's answers were different um, when talking about different subjects. Like I thought for the most part when Ballard was talking about his his role, what he's done with the roster, I thought most of those answers made sense. Um, Colts fans are probably upset with the mistakes he's made, but he acknowledged those mistakes, wore them and, and talked about some of the things he'd do differently. Um, you know, what he'd do right with the quarterback position that he did wrong before, like where they went wrong. It was only when it came to stuff like Jim Irsay's involvement in the Colts or Jeff Saturday's performance—that stuff started to not ring true, and I think that that's an that's an indicator. I mean, it, it's it's everyone's kind of known for a long time. Jeff Saturday is Jim Irsay's guy. Jim Irsay is Chris Ballard's boss. I think you can draw the the dots together pretty easily there.
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. And to take that a step further, he he not Ballard not only fell on the sword for himself, but he held. Everybody else accountable in some way. He talked about Frank Reich in terms of, you know, it's the the habits you build in April and it was off and it wasn't there to start the year and it teetered off. Um, th- there was not a defense about the situation he was in. Uh, you know, obviously acknowledge the roster is bad, but you still have to perform within that. He talked about the offensive line, how he bet on, you know, a couple of new starters to step in around the stalwarts, but he said the stalwarts didn't deliver to their standard. That's even with guys around them who played, obviously, very poorly. A lot of changes on that line. He still said they've got to deliver their standard. I asked about the position they put players in when they made uh, three changes in three weeks, changing the quarterback, offense coordinator, and head coach, and whether he put them in a bad position. He said, they're professionals. Their job is to perform. That is not how anyone's talking about Jeff Saturday, though. And, yes, it's worth – context does matter, and it is worth understanding. He, He was absolutely put in a very difficult position that is unprecedented. Coming in from the outside, and I mean, when he got here, he talked about how he hadn't even watched enough Colts games to have an opinion on the quarterback position at that point in time. So no, and he said he he was you know he's drinking from a fire hose. So no question. he was, you know, in over his head a little bit. So there is something to be said for that. But at the same time, you still have to do something. You are still going to be judged on some results. Maybe you don't have to go five and three. You know maybe you don't have to, you know, turn the entire offense around. But to, when you're asked a question like, what can you point to in any game that you say is like, this is what I showed to make my case, and you just come back to, well, the position I was I was put in is bad, it's it's not good enough because not only is that not a case, but this is a results-based business, and you take a job. Like, if you accept that job in the middle of the season, we knew what the situation was at that point. Like he, he said when he got here, it's, it was a little crazy and chaotic. You have to also accept the results of that, and I just want to share a conversation I had with a player on the Colts uh, the other day. Um, it was just sort of a side conversation, but uh, but you know, we talked about just the struggles of this year. It, it was one of the offensive linemen, and just how kind of tough this was. And I just kind of thanked him for being a pro, uh, you know, through all the, the all the scrutiny. And you know, and he said, when you sign up for a results-based business. You have to accept the results no matter how they come. That is the privilege with getting paid this much, with being in this position that people dream of. And chaotic things happen around you all the time. You have to own it, even if it's not always your fault. You have to own some part of it. So um, when they're looking for leadership, and the big selling point I've heard for Jeff Saturday so far is accountability. Um, this has been a tough couple days of look to sell that when when this is how it's being spun. And I will say that <laughs> all this makes me think that uh, we should rename one of our categories on the First Impressions Pod to the uh, uh, Frank Reich Too Much Blame category because the blame game for Frank Reich over the past two days has been unlike anything I've seen. I mean, I guess we saw Carson Wentz last year, but this year it's pretty hard to to do all that and, and put it all on one
0: person. Carson, you can make a case that Carson would have fit in the Too Little Blame, depending on which circle of Colts Twitter you were in last week last year. Um, yeah, I think. The other thing with Saturday is just So, I asked directly, you know that the perception is that Jeff Saturday has is the front runner, has the leg up on everything that's about to happen in this coaching search. And yeah. Ballard said no. i think I think the, what most Colts fans are wondering, though, is chris chris ballard, by by all accounts and based on what we know so far, they've already had, we already know seven people, they want, they want to interview seven people. One of those is Jeff Saturday, but uh, the five external candidates are all um, either people who are not involved in the wild card round or, or are all people who are not involved in the wildcard round. Four because they're out of the playoffs and one because he's on the number one seed. Um, so knowing that, you expect there to be more. So when Chris Ballard says he's going to do a wide-ranging search, that has been backed up by what we know so far about the search. Um, Bubba Ventrone, who's interviewing – we're taping this on Wednesday. He's interviewing today. Um, we probably should have asked about and should have thought about. Um, I was thinking about that when this came out. But, you know, that's that's an in-house candidate that I don't think most people are talking about getting an interview. Um, that's they're, they're casting a wide – Chris Ballard is trying to cast a wide net. He's leading the search. I think what most fans are worried about is – whatever Ballard decides is, uh, does Jeff Saturday have a leg up with the only person making the decision? And obviously, I think he probably does, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I, I know he does, given that he was brought here in an unprecedented unprecedented circumstances, what's gone on since then. Um, but the question is, is there another candidate out there who can, who can shake that, who can change that?
1: Yeah, Bubba Ventrone, you know, is a guy that when they made the interim choice, I heard several players really wanted him to get it and were frankly shocked that he didn't get that job. You know, and he was one of those that really pressed on through that and ended up really helping Jeff Saturday along. He was, if you watched during games, he would stand right by Jeff on the sidelines. And because he's a guy that knows every part of this roster, he speaks to offensive and defensive players. He's developed a lot of them, even the guys who aren't doing a lot on special teams anymore, a guy like Kenny Moore you know, those guys rise up through special teams ranks. So he has a just a good feel for kind of where where this roster is and maybe what it needs, you know, as a guy that also played uh, for Bill Belichick in New England, uh, as well as other teams. he's So he's got a lot to bring to that kind of a conversation. Um, the kind of tricky thing is, of course, there's a special teams coach and those guys don't usually get a lot of these opportunities, even though the ones that have uh, have been pretty successful. Bill Belichick and, and Jim Harbaugh or John Harbaugh are two of the best examples of that. But you know, this is where it's this whole thing kind of feels a little disjointed because if you were going to fire Frank Reich in the middle of the season, I thought Bubba Ventrone would have been a logical choice, not just because of the stuff I said, but because that was an audition period and that was a chance to do this. And so squaring that with the comments about putting Jeff in a bad position because he was an outsider and all that like you could have put Bubba in theoretically a better position and then kind of added to your evaluation of him and seen now that he's the guy in charge, now that he's the one addressing some of these issues, do they get better in some areas or how does the team respond to that? So they kind of missed a window on that, but I still think he's a very good candidate because he's got the uh, support of the locker room and a lot of the key players, guys like Zaire Franklin, who's one of the top captains, you know, we'll just talk, about, talk to you about Bubba for days. Um, but again, with any of this, what which really what should be very important is the plan you have for the offense, fixing the offense, fixing the offensive line and supporting the quarterback in opinions on the quarterback class. And it'll be fascinating. We probably won't actually hear it, but that's what, uh, you know, Chris Brown and Jim Mercy need to get from the Tron is what is he able to offer an insight in that specific area? Because that is going to be so, so important for turning this around.
0: Yeah, I mean, with anytime it's a special teams coordinator, and this is actually true for Jeff Saturday's candidacy as well, I'm probably going to write about this if if you haven't heard. If you, you, it might be up on the site, depending on when you're listening to this, but for me it's Wednesday, so I'm probably writing about this in the next couple of days. Jeff Saturday essentially said outright that he's not an offensive coordinator, he's not a defensive coordinator. Uh, as a head coach, he would be a CEO type. So the staff matters a lot for guys like that. There's not a ton of – head coaches in the NFL anymore who fit that description where they don't have a specialty on either the offensive or defensive side of the ball it can work um John Harbaugh obviously is very successful uh but your your staff like who's around you it, it matters quite a bit that what you're going to do you know and uh from a schematic standpoint and it matters on both sides of the ball I mean I I think that we probably didn't Write or talk about this enough, but um, some of the adjustments that the defense made over the last couple of years, some of the stuff that Gus Bradley did, Frank Reich was involved in that as as an offensive mind saying, "Hey, if you run your scheme this way, I know how to beat it. If you did this, it would make it harder, and it would change things." So so having having the X's and O's uh, of what what to beat can help both sides of the ball. Um, but that's, that's not what Jeff Saturdays is pitching. Um, he's pitching himself as a leader, essentially. Uh, Bubba Ventrone, I think, is different. I think Bubba Ventrone is – hes I mean, he's been in these uh, – he, he doesn't have the X's and O's from an offensive or defensive standpoint, but he's just been in the NFL a lot longer. He's going to have more of an idea of what to – he's been on a headset a lot longer, so he's going to have more of an idea of how to help out in those situations. But both of them – both of those candidates, the staff, would matter a tonne.
1: Oh yeah. And that's gonna be the one area where Jeff, you know, as he builds a case for this, that's what he has to win over. And he said that he has staff hires in mind. These guys, and I understood why he didn't want to, you know, lay those out for us, but that that's gonna absolutely drive it home is what he's able to pitch to them. Not only, you know, because yeah, like you said, he's gonna be the CEO, CEO type, but but also because that's everything for him is visionary. It's what I would do if given the chance to start in you know, February and see this through a draft in OTAs and mini camp and training camp. And that's where all that leadership stuff, he's basically saying, give me a chance to be the leader. But for that to work, you're going to have to nail the staff. And it's an uphill battle because he's spent eight games, you know, here. And frankly, what he said the other day made me believe. I don't don't think he's a big fan of anybody on his offensive staff. Um, He called them half a staff, which A little surprising to me considering at the time they were down one staffer, but uh, but at the same time, you could kind of feel that disconnect when he got here because you know, two guys turned down the play calling opportunity when he interviewed them, and then Clayton Adams, the tight ends coach, left in the middle of that. So, and they were, you know, Frank Reich's staff, um, probably blind and they were blindsided, as they've admitted to us, about that decision. So, if he's not going to retain those guys, he's going to come in and bring. And a lot of new staffers, it's going to be a challenge because he's he hasn't coached in college, hasn't coached in the NFL. He of course played in the NFL, but that you not you know playing for the Colts for many years doesn't necessarily expose you to guys who could be good defensive staffers. And all these positions matter. And a guy I'll give up bring up this year to prove that point I think is John Fox, who's brought in to be a senior advisor of the defense. We haven't talked to him a lot and it's you know, we it's hard to kind of lay out specifically what he does all the time, but I've heard from multiple players that, that he's really added things throughout this year where um some of its individual matchup based with players, some of it's he would just kind of bounce in different rooms. He was adding sprinkling in elements of the Vic Fangio defense to blend in with what Gus Bradley was doing. You know, there's this criticism or this concern when Bradley was hired that he was this, you know, that he had very kind of kind of, I don't know, predictable, um, static sort of defense, a lot of cover three. The teams would kind of know what's there. And, you know, early in the year, they they did look kind of predictable. That evolved a lot. And I give Gus a lot of credit. A lot of guys went into that. But John Fox was part of that, too. They helped blend that with Vic Fangio's defense. So knowing even guys like that or having the reputation to get that like Frank Reich when he hired Gus Bradley they weren't friends they didn't go back a long time but it was this mutual respect built over the years of working in the league together and then once they sat down and they talked through philosophy there was a match there it's gonna be a challenge for Jeff because again we talk about the situation came into it I'm you know and I don't pin this on him but when he got necessarily but when he got hired coaches around the country were little surprised by that and some of them bothered by that it it just wasn't the best look for the coaching community to bring in an outsider and make him a head coach rather than reward guys like Boba Ventra and John Fox Gus Bradley on that staff who had been there from the start so he's gonna have an uphill battle to number one come up with that list of the staff but also sell to Chris Ballard and Jim Mercy that I can get these guys these guys want to come work with me so it'll be uh that that's gonna have to be the whole way he earns this job
0: and you know one of the things I think that stuck out to me just from a lack of Xs and Os acumen was how many times this year uh in the back half of the season one Saturday took over we asked about them making a schematic change for one reason or the other um like for instance we've talked about this in this pod before but you make the change to Nick Foles asking him are you going to tailor the offense to Nick Foles that's when he's been best in the past and he basically said no there's nothing to do like we that like what what we're doing is what we're doing. Um, and what they were doing was a very simplified version of Frank Reich's offense. Uh here's the thing. If they're going to draft a quarterback, which we all think they are, which I mean, Chris Ballard said, I would, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if we did draft a quarterback. That's the strongest hint he's ever given on a position for the draft that I can think of. And he said he'd be willing to go up to one for it. If you're going to draft a quarterback and that guy's starting for you next year, you have to be able to adjust to get him going in the best way possible. That's if you read like Justin Fields. They, I was watching the Ryan Poles press conference with Matt Eberflus yesterday um, because I needed a, a, a quote on what they're planning to do at quarterback for the story I was writing. And the, one of the first things he says was, I thought we made adjustments to the offense a couple of games in that really helped him. Uh, I know that's been true of people in the past. You you take concepts that fit their, their college or you figure out as you're going up. Frank Reich would say all the time that some of the success that like Philip Rivers had when he was here was them finding out as the games went on what works best in the offense and tailoring it to that and, and changing the offense to fit them. If you can't do that, if you don't have somebody who can do that, that's going to be really tough on a rookie quarterback. It's going to be tough on any quarterback, but it's going to be really tough on a rookie quarterback who's going to need to have the offense fit him, make him comfortable. Um, uh, it's yeah. it's really like it's hard to understate how important the coaching staff is, given what they're going to be doing at quarterback. And and honestly. It's more important because it's a rookie quarterback, but it would be important if it was Derek Carr. I know no one wants Derek Carr, but I'm just like, if they, for some reason, they did have Derek Carr next year, tailoring the offense to his strengths would be a big thing.
1: Yeah, and I think probably the closest example that we can point to for this is Trevor Lawrence. You know, last year he was the number one pick in the draft, and it was Urban Meyer's staff, which, you know, was a very messy situation. But just from a systemic level, that was an Urban Meyer forcing. Trevor Lawrence into his offense, which was heavy quarterback run, a lot of east-west handoffs, and more of a horizontal game. And what happened is they went out and they hired Doug Peterson, who has you know played the position and, and built offenses differently for Nick Foles and uh, Carson Wentz, and won a Super Bowl doing that you know, with with Nick Foles. And he he moved Trevor Lawrence into much more of a you know a play-action RPO vertical type of offense. After, you know, then they went out and fused it with a lot of weapons, but he brought out the best in Lawrence and it got better every single week. And that's that's going to be at the progression they have to build is whatever rookie comes in, you know, in most cases, a rookie is not going to come in and just blow the doors off from when he arrives. Unless it's Joe Burrow, um, Andrew Locke, once in a great blue moon, there's a guy like that. But for the most part, rookies don't play that great or they start slow. Um, you just have to avoid two bad years. You need it to progress from one, um, you know, first half of the season, to the second half, first year to the second year. And so if I was in Chris Ballard's seat, I mean, that should that should drive all of these conversations more than more than that other talk about, you know, the leadership and the accountability and, the you know, even anything with defense is that they are in a rare position where they have a top five draft pick. They've been haunted by this quarterback hole and the the lack of continuity the only way to make continuity at that position is to make it work and so they've they've got to build the best situation they can and it's going to be tough because they've got a lot else they have to fix on this team the offensive line you know they've sunk a lot of money into that and has some issues they've got to got to iron out they have to figure out kind of where they're going at wide receiver paris campbell's a free agent Um, we will see kind of what they decide to do about keeping, you know, extending Michael Pittman, or if that's, you know, if he's a guy who could go to free agency. So the whole plan at quarterback should drive this. And so that's what was kind of jarring to me about Jeff Saturday's case has to veer in that direction in some way. It cannot just be about holding players accountable and being a leader of men. You have to have a plan for this is my coordinator. This is the quarterback I'd like to go get, or this is how we'd make it for multiple quarterbacks. That has to drive the entire thing.
0: Um, let's let's move into a little bit more of some of the some of the stuff you just referenced with the team building. Uh, Chris Ballard opened his press conference yesterday by saying he failed. He failed a lot of people. Um, he spoke at. Uh, he I will say this. He actually gave details on, uh, on on the ways he failed. Um you know the the quarterback shuffling constantly shuffling the quarterback uh obviously had a had a had an effect um he mentioned he underestimated the continuity in the offensive line so constant and switching those spots taking too many chances in those spots uh he also said you know that he's 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 not going to veer from his idea of building through the offensive line or not building up front but he also said there's some other stuff that with the rest of the roster that he maybe needs to rethink. I I think that this, he didn't say this, but I, just just one suggestion that I have. And I know that there's there's some obvious ones. I know people want him to take more chances at the top of free agency. My suggestion for Ballard would be take more chances at the, uh, in, in lower free agency with the depth, with the veterans in the depth. Um, I thought that was one of the things that was missing from this team. They they were lacking answers for when Matt Pryor or Danny Pinter failed right away because they didn't have uh, – Dennis Kelly – some weird stuff happened with Dennis Kelly that I can't – I don't, still don't fully understand exactly what was going on there. So he maybe could have done the tackle thing. But, like, they, they just didn't have – I just look at some of these rosters, like the Eagles and there's or – the, or the 49ers, and you look at, like, the their backups – Defense on the defensive line and the offensive line, and they're like guys I've heard of who've played in the NFL before. And maybe they're not on a big contract, but they're playing good football and they're available if someone's hurt. You know, Rodney McLeod costs I think one point seven seven million dollars. Yeah. Like, what a deal for one point seven seven million! Like you can, you can get, you could sign ten of those guys. It doesn't even matter what your cap situation is. Like, I I think that that's that's one of the other things here is just, like, it's fine to want to see if your in-house guy can can make the jump. But add more competition, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be. I think at some positions it has to be bigger than that. It has to be a bigger investment than that. Like, we saw a couple years ago what happens if you try to sign bargain basement left tackles. That doesn't work out well. But at a lot of these other positions, you can find guys – and he's always said this, too. He's always talked about, you know, finding guys later in free agency. But fill more of those spots. Fill more of those spots with veterans who probably don't cost a lot, probably don't affect your cap that much, but they've played a lot of football, and you get better depth. And there's there's less chance – it gives you more security if, if the guys you're hoping pan out don't.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to go right back to my last example just because I think uh... – it's it's easy to get into the Jaguars. Um, a lot of dunking on the Jaguars for what they did in free agency this past year, and it was really large, centered around Christian Kirk, who got you know four years, seventy-two million. He had he had never played at that level. That was clearly a franchise in disarray that had to overspend to get what they wanted. But he was the tone setter guy. He ended up being a one-thousand-yard slot receiver for Trevor Lawrence. But what got overshadowed in all that is some of the value moves that he made along the way. They got Evan Ingram. One year, nine million dollars. They got Zay Jones, three years, twenty-four million. The year before, they got Marvin Jones, two years, twelve and a half million. These guys are not household names. It's like, in fact, when they signed it, people said, "Oh, what's that really going to do?" Well, it does something when there's that trickle-down effect, and they all fit together. Christian Kirk is more of your number one style wide receiver, at least he was this year, until Calvin really steps in next year. But all these other pieces ended up being absolutely huge for making Trevor Lawrence. Uh, work because they just they got them all together and then they just built it week by week and it wasn't that very good at the beginning but it ended up being good because they had the pieces there and so that i guess i agree with you on that it's my issue with ballard and free has not been the top of the market guys so much i do think he's right when he talks about some of that's fool's gold and um you know if you give too much you know, there's there's other situations where you you give that much money to one guy um it's risky and it's there's money changes guys sometimes too. And it's there's a culture well, for every, that
0: stuff's true. For every Christian Kirk, there's a Kenny Galladay, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, like there is a cultural risk to just dumping on one guy. But these these Evan Ingram, one-year nine million dollar contract guy, I, I don't think there's a lot of risk to that. I know you have to find the right guys, but um and you have to make them work. But this year they brought in um uh, when Chris Power talks about the quarterback changes and not making that work. They brought in Matt Ryan in the trade, and he's the only new starter, veteran starter they brought in. They didn't sign a single other one. And that's even with, um, they they had a tight end opening with Jack Doyle leaving. Wide receiver, two tight wide open left.
0: Tight end, don't you think tight end is a significant missed opportunity for this? There were a lot of veteran tight ends who are good blockers, or at the very least capable blockers who've done it in the NFL who went off the board for very little money in the offseason. Yeah. And I know that was a big point, big part of what went wrong in the run game was that they liked Drew Ogletree in that role, but then when he went down with the ACL, they didn't have anybody else. And so like to me tight end is a, is a big consideration there. You don't you could have gotten somebody to to block better for not very much money at all like yeah. there were a lot of guys who went off the board who could do some some of that stuff yeah and again you think
1: about you, you got to find the players you need to make this work for the collective whole and you think about the steelers game they're hurrying up at the end of the game and they end up uh they they're trying to surprise the steelers with a third down run call and they end up having jelani woods trying to block block alex highsmith he's not ready to do that he's just not that's not why they draft him in the second round that's not what you should be expected to do as a first-year tight end um, but guys like austin hooper or tyler conklin um th- there were some different guys like that in free agency who could have been that and you already know that because their resume their tape is out there this is why you, they've got to be more involved in free agency it's not about spending big on the, the you know necessarily on on these big name players but you've got to just fill the holes that are there give yourself a better chance and i um you know and, and left tackle i think's you know well, you kind of brought this up about rewarding your own players. I think it's totally fine to give them a shot without banking on them to be the only guy where this has succeeded is like Zaire Franklin. They brought back three years, 10 million, but they didn't bring him back to just be a full-time guy and ended up working that way. He was depth and stepped in and he, you know, ended up being really, really good. But you know, that, that worked out nicely once the Shaquille Leonard injury happened, but you know, other instances like matt Pryor, they brought back on a one-year deal to play a position that he was not fit to do and they didn't really have any other options there until they kind of things worked a certain way and they got a project left tackle in the third round of bernard ryman but they bet everything on just some guy who was here whereas over the course of the past two years there were guys who were more proven commodities maybe you have to overpay a little bit to get that security uh, but Charles Leno would have been that, and he ended up being a Pro Bowl left tackle. Chris Ballard was hoping for something with higher upside, something that could get more to a star left tackle range. But at some point, you have to keep the bottom from falling out of important positions, and that's what free agency helps you do. I think the draft helps you get your premium talent in the long run, but free agency helps plug those critical, critical holes that you have to have to make your style of football work.
0: I think I think there's also a case to be made that he could make more investments at the higher ranges of free agency. And I think the case is that when he's done it, he's generally been fairly successful. Justin yeah. Houston was a, was a $12 million uh, annual value player who had uh, 19 sacks in two years. Stefan Gilmore this year played very, very well. It was a good investment that that the rest of the league wasn't necessarily sure about. Um, Danico Autry is, I mean, he wasn't quite as much money. Danico Autry is more of a, um, a value signing the Ballard understood better than the rest of the league but but some of the some of these some of these higher dollar free agent signings when they've done them have been successful trust your scouting you you've, you've been good with the scouting trust it and and maybe it means you have to pay a little bit more than the value you'd like but you're you, you end up with better depth i mean if you have if you have a uh, if you have those guys coming in, and and then you draft somebody who turns out to be really good, like if a Rodney Thomas shows up, no, you're never upset that you have a bunch of good players. You're never like, oh, dang it, I just have too many safeties this year. I can't believe I did that. Um, you you want to have that, and I think I think the Eagles are a good example of this. Just look up and down their gut chart at like how deep they are at all their positions, and I think that that's probably something that needs a change for him. Is just Trust your pro scouting more. You, it's it hasn't been bad when when they've made investments, they've done a good job like on both both ends on the top and the bottom of finding people it's it's fine to trust it more. now, obviously with the Colts, there's always the question of, you know, do they have the cash? Um, which is a harder thing for us to know. We don't get to see those those figures. but but you can the, the cap's about to go way up. there's there's some stuff they can do there,
1: yeah, and I I think what's interesting here is the guys you brought up where he, this has worked, uh, Stefan Gilmore, Danico Autry, and Justin Houston, all defensive players. Like Chris Ballard seems to have a little bit more trust in that process on the defensive side of the ball. He's really good at drafting and signing defense, really. Like you go through it. Roddy Thomas is a great example. That's a seventh-round pick. Zaire Franklin was a seventh-round pick. He's got to understand, though, when, like, when that's the case, though sometimes that means you even need to lean in. in even more into the proven commodity. If his area, clearly the area I think that that has not been his strength, that has not been his area of confidence, has been the passing game, quarterback, wide receivers, the aggressiveness, tight end at those levels. So that that's where you know you do need to lean on your scouts, guys that are more in those areas. And also I think this is where you know I think they would really benefit from an offensive-minded coach who maybe frankly pushes those buttons a little bit more. Frank Reich had a lot of ideas. For this stuff, I I wonder looking back if maybe he should have we know what the things he wanted. He talked about wanting two guys at wide receiver, left tackle's most important position. You know, I don't know if he pushed it enough at that time of year or or what, but like when Doug Peterson got to Jacksonville, I know there were things
0: that Frank i know there were things that Frank Reich wanted from a player standpoint that he couldn't get. I'll say that.
1: Yeah, oh I know that too. And I wonder, I don't know if another coach maybe can push those buttons more if they'll listen to him. They need to, though. Because that's what happened to Jacksonville. Doug Peterson said, I'm taking this job as long as you go out and let me, like give me the guys I need at wide receiver to fix Trevor Lawrence. And boy, they did it. (laughs) They overdid it, honestly. It got made fun of for it. But at least that's better than than just not, you know, not supporting that at all. And so I think fowler has got a great system on the defensive side of the ball. He needs to lean and trust somebody a little bit more in the passing elements of it. And then the area where I think that, it's hard to read, but he's got to get a better handle on is the offensive line. For a while here in his tenure, he did a great job with that. This year, it really fell off and and fell off performance-wise, fell off in the nastiness, the demeanor, the culture. And I thought yesterday he expressed a lot of that, where he said, I think your offensive line creates a contagious energy and intensity. And the moment with Nick Foles on the ground where they didn't step up and uh, and, and do something about Kayvon Thibodeau, he – he he looked like he was pretty upset when he was talking about that, and that's that's something he's got to rework because it's it's kind of his that's supposed to be his area on the offense, other than running back, I guess. But the area that that he's most invested, most aggressive with, he's he's got to rewire
0: that. Um, let's get to the quarterback portion of this. Maybe we'll end on end on this. Uh, obviously, they have a high pick. He has always said before that he thought that if they were making a pick that high, that he would not be here. He is still here. Um, and and honestly, I, I've seen some people saying, like, shouldn't we be discussing whether or not Chris Ballard should be here? Uh, that ship's kind of sailed. The owner kept him. Like, he's running the search. That like, gets... I I I I would say that my my belief was that Reich and Ballard should be tied at the hip. I think Ballard's probably more responsible than Reich for what happened this season, but to me the point now is to look forward, not backwards. And the forward part of it is Chris is still running this team. Chris Ballard is still running this team. So um, he is he has he does have a pick now that can get a quarterback, the fourth pick in the draft, even if. Three quarterbacks go in front of them. There's still a quarterback to take. And they have enough draft capital to move up from where they are. They're they're fourth. And I I think I I just wanted to pin him down on this. So I asked, you know, you've always talked about getting the right guy. If there's a guy in this draft that you think is the right guy, would you move heaven and earth to get him? Would you go up to number one? And he said unequivocally, before I was even done answering the question, yes. So, um, like that—that that I think was probably the thing from the, the press conference that Colts fans should have been the most excited about. And, and now the question is just: Does he think that there's a quarterback in this draft who's the right guy? Um, I, I think if you if you do think there's a guy in here that's the right guy, you need to start moving up right away, because I think in the past, specifically in the Justin Fields draft, they have assumed that players weren't going to be there. Uh, are going to be available in a in a range where they could get to them. I, I think that it, with a quarterback, it is way too risky to see if your guy drops to four. You'd have to have incredible intel from the agent or something. Well, especially uh, I, when
1: especially when it, it's forming as sort of like a a race between two AFC South teams, uh, Texans right there in front of the Colts, and then the Bears sitting there taking field or fielding trade offers, and so. If you believe one guy is is the guy over the others, you're going to risk it not only not getting him, but facing him for the next 20 years, you know, in the division. Uh, So that that should add to it a little bit, too. And if the Bears, you know, if they're a savvy team this offseason, they will use that to their advantage to get even more in a trade. Um, But that's what's going to be interesting to see kind of how much they're willing to push the chips. And Chris said he would do whatever it takes. Um, That would mean, obviously, parting with picks. Uh, but also, it could mean since it's the Bears, I, I still believe this could mean parting with players. Because if there's one edge that they have in this race, I mean, Houston has the number 12 pick on top of number two. They have better draft capital. Uh, the one thing the Colts have is they have players that the head coach of the Bears very much likes. Matt Eberflus, you know, developed a lot of these players on the defense side of the ball. Not only that, but he knows what he's getting out of someone if you wanted to trade an offensive player. Maybe that's you know, maybe that's an offensive lineman. Maybe that's Michael Pittman Jr. There's different options. But uh, that that's something that, you know, Chris Bauer's been very, very tied to his own players, too. Uh, you know, that's, that's the scout in him. He loves the guys that he drafted. He loves when he hits on them or the guys he invested in, like DeForest Buckner. It's going to test this, though, because you have to move heaven and earth to go get the guy when, when he's in demand. And if you get the feeling that the guy, if that's Bryce Young, and the Texans think it's Bryce Young too. Like you're going to have to win that bidding war, and you're going to have to pay a price that is not going to be very fun in the moment to swallow that. But that's what it's going to take to get this thing fixed, or else what could happen is, you know, Bryce Young goes number one. Maybe you get another quarterback. Maybe it all works out. But that's where, like, I keep well, I was talking about the coaches they're interviewing is that that's they've got to create some kind of they've got to create alignment plan all that. They've got to have a coach who has a plan for that quarterback that you're going to go up and draft, and this is how we're going to build the offense around him, and this is how we're going to build sort of a progression plan that can bring out the best of him without kind of hurting his confidence and development. It's a big, big uphill battle here, and um, and a huge part of this alignment that they're going to have to battle is getting Jim Irsay on board with that and also patient with it, because this season, if it's shown us anything, is that uh, patience has not exactly been Jim Irsay's strong suit. I'm not going to lie. I'm worried about
0: more than the Texans if I'm the Colts. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Teams have moved up from further down in the first round before. And I I understand, you know, if you're the the Bears and you want one of the two big um, defensive linemen, you probably don't want to move that far down. But I I would just be real worried about, you know, any team that needed a quarterback, honestly, Um, just going completely all in. You know, I, I don't. I don't know all their picks, and the, I don't know all these teams' picks in the future. But there's a lot of teams in the top ten that need a quarterback and might be willing to sell their futures to get up. So I, I, I'd be worried about more than just the Texans. Um, well that's yeah. some of this stuff. Is, some of this stuff is going to come up again at the combine and, and the draft stuff. So let's get into let's let let's get into um, your point about the the coaching candidates that they have so far. It's an interesting group. It's an interesting group so far. We we we've already talked about Ventrone. We talked about uh, Jeff Saturday. Uh, there's there's five other guys and uh, Raheem Morris, the Rams' defensive coordinator, is one. Uh, Lions' offensive coordinator Ben Johnson is another. Lions' defensive coordinator Aaron Glenn is another. Um, Broncos' defensive coordinator Ajero Avero is one is the one, and then the last one is Philadelphia offensive coordinator Shane Steichen. Um, Ballard promised that it would, that the side of the ball didn't matter, and that's that's been um, paid out so far. They're they're looking at guys. They, they, it's basically the other the five external candidates so far. Outside of the fact that they can interview right away and they're not in a wild card game right now, uh, the thing that sticks out to me is that all of these guys are names that I've seen on future head coach lists for a couple of years now, with the exception yeah. of maybe Johnson, who's more of a late riser, but. But he's a good late riser. The Lions' offense uh, finished top five in both yards and scoring this year, and Jared Goff is the quarterback. That's that's a good resume, if you ask me. Yeah, actually, I think you know some of the. It's interesting. Some of the guys that he's
1: interviewing, I think, are from teams whose offenses resemble what he wanted his to be. Shane Steichen's like that. In Philadelphia, the way they built the trenches and. Um, and then the lions I, they're built primarily uh, up front and just kind of what the creative elements that that opens up like the guy who could work with um if i give you the line what kind of creative things can you do what how can you build it specific to that quarterback so they've all kind of they've got good cases in that there's a mix there though of like some guys are a little bit more i'd say like aaron glenn you hear a little bit more of the kind of leadership stuff you know, i've talked to guys. You know, I covered Detroit. I've heard people say he's he's definitely going to be a head coach. He just kind of has that that vibe to him. And you know when I was talking about the like the the focus on offense, I I I I think you'd prefer that to be an offensive coach because then no one's hiring away the guy who built the offense, that kind of thing. But there is a world where you can hire a defensive coach so long as he's that kind of forward thinking uh, individual is someone who's like just creative and, and it also believes this that it is all about offense that I've got to build this around the quarterback I think a special teams coach could be like that too I think that's what's made uh, John Harbaugh so successful is that even though he didn't come from an offensive background I mean they build an offense completely around Lamar Jackson that's completely different than how they won a Super Bowl with Joe Flacco so it is an interesting list it's also a very big contrast to Jeff's like it's it's like these two different uh, sides of candidates. You have Jeff Saturday, who the appeal to him in Jim Irsay's eyes was that he wasn't tied to um, the way things have been done in the NFL, that he was an outsider, that he was you all know, the leadership type stuff. These other guys are all the same background, the ones Ballard has put on the list, which is coordinators, current coordinators in the NFL, and they've all been doing it for at least eight years. So they have some buildup. They have some understanding of just sort of the – the demands uh, of the job. And I think another thing that's important here is for some of them, the coaches they've learned under is Valor talked a lot yesterday about all the demands on a head coach that nobody on the outside realizes in terms of managing the roster, managing the coaching staff, the schedules, media, just the day-to-day scrutiny, keeping a level, you know, setting the tone of the building. Um, Some of these guys have learned under guys who are doing it really well. The, The two in Detroit are learning under Dan Campbell, who's looked like a great leader and all those, he's more, he's kind of more your CEO type coach when you were you were thinking of one of those. And then obviously Shane Steichen with, with Nick Siriani has done a great job there too. So they're touching on a lot of the things that, that Ballard has said they need. Uh, but kind of going through all of that and finding both the right leader, but also the best plan for a quarterback and creating alignment there. That's what they've got to try and do.
0: Um yeah, yeah, it's uh it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's. I think it's going to be a really long list. I think we're going to do about maybe three of these podcasts, um, where we're talking about different candidates. I think it's going to be a long list of interviews. I we're we're already at seven. Well, and we don't, don't necessarily been granted all of those. But...
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean the one kind of name hanging out there who hasn't joined that list yet, but everyone's talking about it, is Jim Harbaugh, and going to see if that ends up being another thing. I know that they are interested. They've been interested in it. That's not a surprise, uh, but they're not the only team. And the other team that you hear a lot about that's very interested in him is uh, the Denver Broncos. So uh, the Carolina Panthers spoke briefly with them. So that one's a very different case than what these other names seem like, which is that there's already clearly a bidding war forming for Jim Harbaugh's services. And so that can be a different conversation. It's not just, you know, asking this candidate to sell himself to you and his plan to you. You have to kind of sell your franchise and your stability and your your plan to them. At least with Harbaugh, that's going to be incredibly important because, you know, he is on a at his alma mater and he's got them rolling, and he's got other options. And so uh, that'll be one to watch here. But I do think this will, if it's. If it's not Jim Harbaugh they're hiring, I think this could play out for a very long time because they've got an in-house guy, Jeff Saturday, the owner is obviously very interested in. And I don't like it creates a situation where they can really be patient with it. And I think that's what Chris Ballard emphasized that he learned from the last time that he did this.
0: Right. Not just a not just an in-house candidate that the owner is interested in, but also an in-house candidate that the rest of the league is not asking to interview. Yeah. Yeah. He's um, like we don't have it. Any- we don't have any other interviews for Jeff Saturday reported. So um, the other thing that the other thing is like in terms of names coming out, generally candidates come from successful teams. And a lot of those successful teams are playing in the playoffs this weekend. So uh, that's part of it. That's part of it is as, as teams get knocked out as teams don't finish, I think there's probably candidates on those staffs that they want to talk to. And I, I would, like like you said, with the exception of having to go in to get Harbaugh right away, um, I would bet that Chris Ballard wants to make sure he talks to him because he used to talk a lot about how after the McDaniels thing, after they hired Reich and Reich had success early on here, he felt that he made a mistake by overlooking him the first time, and so uh, I think that, that's, I think that that's, that's probably a good bet is that as, as guys keep coming, he's going he's gonna to try to talk to as many people as possible. What happens after that, that's, that's up to Jim Mersey. And handicapping what he's going to do has been a fool's errand this year. Uh, we're, we'll be back. We're going to keep monitoring all this stuff. Uh, we're probably back to a weekly schedule. Um, there might be some – there's probably going to be some quote-unquote emergency pods Um, just with news breaking and stuff like that, but I think we're probably back to more of a weekly thing. The first impressions format is going to have to take a break for a little while, Uh, but, but yeah, we're, uh, we're into the coaching search now, into the off season Uh, for the Colts cover two podcast. This is Joel Erickson. I've been joined by Nate Atkins. Keep your dial tuned to Indy star. We're going to have as many updates as I can type and Nate can type.